SEO is a bloodbath and the game's changing with AI. That's Chris Dreyer, serial entrepreneur, best-selling author, and the founder of Rankings.io. Most of the time, the issue is not the strategy, it's an undercapitalization issue. They don't have the capital to compete in that market. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Chris Dreyer to discuss the harsh truth about what it takes to be an effective marketer, how to build credibility and become a thought leader, and how to scale your organization by creating leverage. A lot of people need to change their mindset to I'm afraid about AI, to I'm excited about AI. There's so much leverage, there's so many capabilities, but a lot of our technicians, so to speak, have went from writing to being prompt engineering editors. Mm -hmm. And the amount of output that we can do versus the other agency that's still writing the content, we're about 10x. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Chris, welcome to the podcast. So excited to be here. Man, this is awesome. Thank you for making the trip. This is going to be a lot of fun. Obviously, we've known each other for years. And today, you're the CEO of Rankings.io. I know you're involved in a lot of other ventures. Let's go back to the beginning. Just, I'd, I'd love if you would share just some of your origin story, some of your upbringing in terms of why you are the way you are. I grew up poor. My mom was a cook. My dad was a mail carrier. And I didn't know that I was poor. I had all these side hustles. I would clean houses with my mom on the weekend. We would like bring water into, you know, we'd have to go to town for water. Had no idea. Like my parents like kind of hid this from me and I just thought that's what you do. But it really created like this grit, like get it done. Like it's just, we do it, no excuses. And it starts there with my parents. My parents always gave up a lot of themselves for me and their kids. And we went on this arc, right? They started to generate more money. And that's kind of where it started as a childhood was, was growing up poor. But when I went to college and we can, we can go any journey here, Mike, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'm an entrepreneur. The idea of me working for someone, it would be like me in a, like a box in a, in a cage, like just screaming. I'm always curious about this in terms of just like entrepreneurs born versus made. Like, did you know I'm different? I can't work anywhere like you would be a very unemployable human being or was it, it just you're just having a you know a bunch of bad experiences thinking what's wrong with me I knew it I told my parents I was like look I know you guys want me to go to college I'll do that and I said just so you know though I'm starting my own business and that right out of the gate and said that backing up just a little bit I was a top athlete at our high school records all over the place college recruited basketball as a point guard is a lot thinner than 
And I had that competitive side. My dad really drove me. We had practices on the weekends. When we practiced with my father, it wasn't play, it was practice. And in fact, we would have friends come over and they would never want to go to practice again because it was work. Like we put in the work. And so I had this energy. I had this drive to be the best. And it really stemmed from my father. My father said, you only play the game to win. So I went to college, was just a partier, honestly. I didn't know what I wanted to do because I wanted to own my own business. And I kind of was lost. And somehow I ended up with a degree in history education. I don't know how I was the worst student. And I've got stories about that where I almost got kicked out of college. And I'll tell you, if you want to dive into that too, we can talk about it because it's kind of funny. Please, let's do it. SIU, if you're listening, please earmuff. So I was not the best student and we had this history education paper towards the end of the year and I didn't want to write it. It was like a 30 page paper. So I outsourced it, right? I paid someone to write it. The girl that I paid to write it plagiarized. So I get called in the office and they're like, you plagiarize all this work. And I'm like playing dumb. And I, you know, I can't tell them that, no, I paid this other person to write it. So I had to retake the class and yeah, you didn't technically plagiarize. Right. I didn't. And that was a whole thing, but somehow ended up with a degree. I had good grades somehow. I would cram for tests, you know, that recall at the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy. I was rocking that. And I got a job at a high school as a detention room supervisor and JV basketball coach because I thought at one time I was going to coach college basketball due to my experience playing in, in high school. Somehow I ended up there and I typed in how to make money online. And that's where I found this whole world of digital marketing. And we can kind of go from yeah. there. There's, I guess, a couple things to unpack there. Number yeah. one, I know you said you wanted to be an entrepreneur, but what is it about that? Like, how did you see entrepreneurship? Was it this quest for freedom? Was it just the fact that you just wanted to be able to do things your way? Like, what was that drive? That's it. Freedom and no caps. I knew what I was capable of. I didn't want to have any ceiling. And, and I had a lot of fear around there. I also had where I looked up to my uncle. My uncle was very, very wealthy, um, CEO of multiple organizations, exits, and I saw that life and what was possible. I knew it was possible, so I kind of aspired and looked up to him, and I, I wanted more. And once I kind of saw that life being poor and then opening my eyes, it was an, an entirely different experience out there, and I knew it was possible. Yeah, I guess to the Google search, how to make money online. I think if somebody ran this search today, I don't know if the outcome oh, would be yeah. the same, but like what kind of things were coming up then? Yeah, back in the day, there was no courses for digital marketing. There was like this one course and warrior forums and you had to learn from the guy. This course has taught you the fundamentals of affiliate marketing, the really basics. It, the whole goal was at the end of the course to make your first 10 bucks. I think I made like 20 bucks, but it gave me the knowledge to pursue this. And I obsessed, went all in, and that was all I thought about. And by the end of my second year teaching, I was making about $16,000 a month, significantly more than I was teaching. I ranked number one for double chin for three years, I ranked number one for alcohol withdrawal with no disclaimers. And thankfully I didn't get sued. I ranked number one for acai fruit after the Oprah stuff, generators during the Katrina era, and many, many more. And after I was making so much money, I just thought, hey, I put in my notice, had a mentor from a friend that I used to play this collectible card game that was doing digital marketing. And I moved to Florida and just dropped everything. And I knew that was the path and just pursued it and went all in. 
and for someone who's listening, let's say like explain like is if it's a five year old listening, what is affiliate marketing? Just in case, affiliate marketing is just selling other people's goods for a commission. Yeah, you go to Amazon, they have an affiliate program. You can sell basically anything on Amazon and get a commission. Yeah, Commission Junction, Click, or uh, let's see, ClickBank and a few others. There's most sites have an affiliate network at the bottom in the footer. And it's interesting. So while you're doing this, I mean, at the time, what what year was this? Roughly? This was around 2006. Okay, so like I'm, I'm trying to think of like the state of the internet at that point, right? In terms of like what was working, what wasn't, what SEO was then versus what it is now. Like it seemed like that was a almost like an ideal time period for a lot of affiliate marketing. It's it's obviously very different today. Very different today. Back then, if you wrote a query, wrote an article, it may not have existed on Google, and you'd be the only one. So you automatically ranked, and it wasn't so much about quality. And I could build just a few backlinks and have these sites ranking number one. And I wish back then, you know, we all have wishes and whatever, and I, I don't really regret anything, but there's different ways of funding growth and a lot of people bootstrap. And I wish I would have took on debt back then because of how effective it was. I could have really accelerated my earnings, a significant clip. And it was, it was the wild west and I did really well there. Is if you, you just wish you could have invested more and in just being able to scale what it was because I'm, I'm sure the returns at that point were very just disproportional. Yeah. yeah, and it was great up until that first Google algorithm that really cracked down on things. It was the Penguin algorithm and it penalized bad backlinks and my link building quality wasn't exceptional. And I went from about sixteen dollars to $20,000 a month down to about two. And at the time, I wasn't the saver I am or the investor that I am today. So I had to get a job. And back then you went to Craigslist. So I typed in SEO and I fired off my resume to so many companies. I hit Craigslist filter where I couldn't apply for more. And I actually got hired by three companies. And Mike, I know a lot of people would say, well, which one did you take? I took all three. They are all three remote companies. This wasn't the day back in Slack. They had go-to meetings. Their Zoom really didn't exist. And I had this affiliate team. So I was the top employee at all three companies because of my productivity based upon my ODesk back in the day. Now it's Upwork. I had a Philippine staff of about 14 doing three careers and they were all three agencies. So what happens next? I mean, because you know, obviously at this point, yeah. you, you go from what, 16,000 plus a month down to 2,000 a month. Now you've got these three jobs. What's kind of the gap between there to then starting your own business? I saw what was possible. I never thought about the professional services space. And I had three agencies. I saw how they were operating. So I had to pick what one agency was doing well and what the others weren't. And at the time, one of the agencies worked with a lot of attorneys. And I was their lead guy. And I talked to many attorneys all around the country. And I had the itch. I had to do it. I had to go out on my own. And I told the guy, I said, hey, I'll replace myself. I'll train them. I'll, I won't poach any of your clients, but I'm, I'm going in legal. They didn't make me sign a non-compete. They did try to Force that a little bit later, but I remind them like, hey, I didn't sign that. Mm -hmm. And I started and I hustled that first month to get a few clients. I never poached or ever talked to these other clients. But three years after I opened my agency, the main one went bankrupt. They shut down. So then it was like, hey, let's go talk to all these clients I knew the, from the, the agency past. shut down. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of different stories in this journey. Uh, we talked previously, I was a world-ranked collectible card game player. I was a, many people would say a pro poker player. And um, all these things, I've always tried to compete at the highest level and just win at anything I've pursued. Yeah. 
let's talk about that because like, have you found like with all these different things that you were involved with and, and even are involved with now, I know there's also the real estate and the investing. Do you see any commonalities between any of them and just in terms of like what becomes an attractive opportunity for you? There's a ton of commonalities. I look at something like real estate and we talked about this a few years ago. I was talking to you about dabbling. Well, I'm no longer dabbling, right? I've got an eight figure real estate company now. I correlate it to SEO. SEO, you know your numbers. Everything changes when you know your numbers, the cost to acquire a client, what the client's worth. And in mine, I'll just be really candid. I'm, it's 60 grand for me to acquire a client. I don't have this bottom level ascension path, but it's worth about 240K. And you look at that for real estate. If I go find a house and I put down a 20%, let's just say it's a 100K house, that's my cost to acquire a client and it's worth X amount per month. But the difference is, where I'm scrutinized in marketing and have to be exceptional because, hey, where are the leads at? I got a tenant that's going to sign a long-term commitment. It's not a month-to-month agreement. They're going to sign a year. They may stay multiple years and they're conditioned to have a rental increase due to inflation. I'm outsourcing my debt. The debt gets cheaper. So there's corollaries on all these, even in the poker thing. Back in the day when I was doing this collectible card game, I was like a world rank player. I won four state championships. No one had done that at the time. It was applied aggression, applied math. And I took that math-based knowledge into poker and did very well in poker. Yep. So a lot of corollaries. Interesting. And by the way, I want, I want to give you credit because with your agency today, I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are attorneys and law firm owners with rankings.io. So with everything everyone just heard, right, yeah. about like former Chris and kind of some of yeah. the things you did, let's say like gray hat, maybe, maybe yeah, some oh of them. Yeah, gray hat, um, or black hat. How is that different from what you're doing today? Because I know you guys are doing things right. Absolutely. I'm glad you asked that. There was a lot of pain and going from sixteen twenty thousand dollars a month down to two and i learned what not to do so i've always focused on longevity my risk tolerance my personal risk tolerance is much higher and i can't imagine ever risking my clients so i've always done in fact in the 10 years i've owned the agency we've never had a penalty ever a link penalty so we've always played the white hat game the long-term game I take that competitive side and we've talked about this. I've heard you talk about this. SEO is a bloodbath and the game's changing with AI and the quantum leaps there. Most of the time, the issue is not the strategy. It's, it's an undercapitalization issue. They don't have the capital or the strategy to compete in that market. So, and what, yeah. do, what do you mean by that? Like where would the capital be deployed typically? The capital can be deployed in content. It can be deployed in the website and the strategic messaging, the CRO, the link building, all those aspects, even the staff to acquire or the processes to acquire reviews, very significant. Things like ChatGPT are lowering some of those productivity costs in terms of content, yep. in terms of link building. That's where the real fault is. It's not that the SEO agency wants to be unethical and they make these promises because they actually believe it's a Dunning-Kruger effect. They actually believe they can generate results. They don't understand that the legal vertical or the PI space is, is so competitive that you need significantly more capital. And the same thing can happen in Facebook ads. If I'm spending a significant amount on Facebook ads, even with a bad strategy, I'm going to perform better than the person that's got an amazing strategy at 10K a month budget. Yeah. And I want to elaborate on that also, just because let's say you're a law firm in Los Angeles, California, personal injury firm. And let's say you're just, you've got a website, you've never really dabbled in SEO. You say, hey, I want to start ranking. What would you say to that person? What's it going to take? And when they say start ranking, what they really mean is they want to rank page one. They right? want to rank page one. They, they, they want to rank, rank page one. eight, right? Yeah, exactly. And the game has changed anyways. The game is no longer just organic. It's maps, it's local service ads, it's Google ads, it's all. You can't 
depend upon just SEO. Right. The game has changed. And you got to set expectations. You got to know what their case is worth. All these different strategies. You got to look at the type of firm they are. There's a real issue. And when we can talk about labor arbitrage and uh, labor-based leverage, mm -hmm. let's go really binary here. You got a pre-lit settlement firm, high volume, they're advertising, but they're not, they're solving for the average. Right. What's Colossus data tell us this case is worth? They're solving for the average. Versus you got the litigating firm that's solving for the client, the individual for maximum value. Mm -hmm. They're not typically, now there's some exceptions. Shannar does a really good job. He's an exception where they just don't have as many cases. They don't need as many cases. So when they try to choose a channel like SEO, they're not going to have as many review opportunities. Yep. They don't have as many cases. So that may not be the channel for you if you're a litigating firm. But if you're a pre-lit firm, it may be good for you. Mm-hmm. With any of this stuff, I don't know when ever likes to hear this from, from any agency where they say, well, how long is it going to take? Because they're looking at like, how long will it take from the time that I invest any amount of money, whatever, you know, it's a dollar, $10,000, $100,000 until I start seeing, let's say in quotes results, which generally means a return on their investment where it's a multiple of whatever it is that they put in initially, right? And typically the answer is, well, it depends, right? Because there's just so many variables. And I know nobody ever likes to hear that, but why does it depend? And what are the typical variables? Let's focus on just the organic side. In 2016, there were 3 trillion web pages. What is it today in 2023, especially at the advent of ChatGPT? Google doesn't have the financial capability to crawl every page. It's significantly slower than it ever has been. The whole Google helpful algorithm came out. The reason they wanted to have you delete old content is so that it could help them crawl the web. That's why. It's a cost-based issue. So... You can't put content out and expect that their Google's even going to find it or index it. it. It may take two to three months, depending upon your site's authority. It is a very long-term play. And, and what I mean by that is in, it's no longer SEO, it's search engine marketing. You have to combine local maps, Google ads, and LSA to play in that channel. It's no longer the gravy train that it used to be. And when you look at the opportunity, the opportunity is still there. Google and YouTube, if you count YouTube as a Google property, have more monthly website visitors than the next 48 sites combined. It's just a more difficult game. Yeah. I think sometimes when people hear this, they think, well, I guess, does it even make sense to invest in something like that, whether it's SEO, whether it's in social? I mean, my answer is always, well, if you're going to do nothing, like, I, mean, I guess the perceived alternative is that there's something that someone can do today that would give them the return they want today. And, and unfortunately, it just doesn't really work that way, right? So meaning that there are things you can do today, like I'm sure you could buy leads and lead services that will get the phone ringing to some degree. But usually I think what somebody has in their mind, they're thinking six, seven, eight figure cases. 1000%, Michael. And when we look at direct response, which is a short term orientation, a quicker, those are all driven by data and they're significantly higher costs. You're not going to get the same ROI as brand and brand over time is going to allow you to, to get that significantly lower cost per acquisition. So I always tell people in the beginning, like if you need cases, focus on direct response, but a little bit of brand. And over time, that disparity is going to shift significantly more to brand. Absolutely. I mean, I, I even look at our business. We're at this point, we're probably like 80% brand, maybe 20% direct response, maybe 90-10 at this point. And because I think brand is what pays the greatest dividends, especially over the long term. But it does also require you to have an outlook where early on when I started the business, I don't know if this was the case for you. For me, it was, I looked at things like 30-day outlook. That's how yeah. I was treating everything in the business. Today, 
I look at three years out, five years out. So I don't have to win today. I can do something, make some sort of investment today that three years from now, you know, really starts to pay in return that I may see zero return on for 12 months, 16 months. And that's okay. But I think that's where a lot of the greatest opportunities are. Thousand percent agree. And that's why a lot of times, and it, we can go back to the capitalization and all those types of things, individuals will try billboards, they'll try TV and they'll say it doesn't work. Well, how much did you invest? Yeah. Did you refine it? Did you get in front of the right people? And those types of things, that relationship equity, that memorability, it compounds over time. Yeah. So let's, let's actually, let's talk about that because I think there's that. And then also the concept of leverage. I think the two, the two are related. Yeah. So any medium that anybody decides to go into, let's say from a marketing standpoint, whether it's billboards, radio, TV, I mean, I believe everything works and everything can work. I, mean, I think email works. I think texting works. I think SEO works, PPC works, social works, but not everything works for everyone because either they have not invested a sufficient amount of money to be able to determine whether that they reach a certain point in market saturation, or there's just not enough time that's spent. So for example, with TV, Every successful TV advertiser that I speak with will say that, look, if you're going to go into TV, you've got to prepare to make a full year commitment, a sizable investment, and expect no return for a 12-month period, and then maybe start to get a return month 13 onwards. And if you're not willing to do that at the onset, don't even go into TV. Absolutely. I heard Kyle Backus from Backus & Shanker yep. told me the exact thing. Invest for a year. And there's different strategies. There's still a lot of opportunity in TV. I know there's OTT and streaming and look, I'm a millennial and it's Disney plus Netflix, YouTube TV, all that, but there's still a big audience for distribution. When it comes to leverage, there are, are four, and this is, we talked about this and Naval Ravikant is a great resource. If you guys want to look into that, the first one I'm going to start with is labor. And this is the one that's a little taboo. And so just bear with me, guys. When you're a professional services agency, you really got three choices. You have a choice of a full-time employee. They are high maintenance. They require culture, training, all the goods. But you have high control. You can get them to do whatever you need them to do. So if you have a specialty service that's not out there and you need a lot of control, then that could be a good option. Or creative, video editing, things like that. The next option is you could use a subcontractor subcontractors, medium maintenance, because they already know how to do the craft. You don't hire a subcontractor that doesn't know how to do the work, but medium control because someone else can take their utilization. We've been through this. You just had this amazing renovation to this building, which is incredible. I mean, it's, it's unreal. If people have projects at home, it's like, oh, you try to get these contractors on another job. It's like, get back on my job. So that's the deal you, you run into with subcontractors. And then you have vendors or strategic partners it's it's low maintenance because they know how to make the widget but low control you're not going to tell them how to change that assembly line to make the widget how you want it made and so there's all types of things here and you can dig into any of these if you look at the full-time employee there's labor-based leverage and arbitrage and even in the united states if i'm hiring in the midwest versus the west coast it's going to be cheaper and go that a step further and this is where it gets taboo it's what if I hire in South America, same time zone, and maybe I get 10 developers for the same cost as one US-based? Mm -hmm. And that's where the kind of the argument for this globalization comes in, and people really get worried about this. And, you know, I'm Well, this is nothing new. Yeah. You look at a lot of corporations. I mean, this is exactly what they're doing. I mean, even companies that people love and respect, like Apple, I mean, they're not making the iPhones in America. 
we start a business to make a profit, Michael. Otherwise, you're a nonprofit or it's a hobby. Yeah. To take that a step further, if someone has a problem with iPhones not being made in America, I read somewhere that if iPhones were made in America, you buy one today, it's about a thousand bucks. It would be closer to like eight to ten thousand dollars if it was made in the U.S. Absolutely. One of the things I think that most people don't utilize properly, and I would say this for many high performers, high hourly people, is they don't use enough assistance. It's a way to gain additional labor-based leverage. You maximize your time. And there are all those. And that, that's just on labor. Let's say you go to the next one, you go to capital. Capital-based leverage in professional services, you go buy EBITDA. Here's the thing. And Alexander Shinara, who goes buys 4,000 billboards, is going to get an average billboard cost of $1,000 for a billboard versus the guy that buys 30, and maybe his average cost is three or 4,000. Right. So that's leverage. There's economies of scale in Google Ads. If I do wrap a radius around Philadelphia versus the entire state of Pennsylvania, I'm going to get lower cost cases. And that comes into play with private equity and all the ABSs. This is how you win the game. And people don't talk about it enough. They don't understand it. But this is how you win. You go a step further. Let's go next to tech, right? Mm -hmm. Tech, automations in your CRM, that's leverage. And you got ChatGPT. Yep. I ask my team, are we farming without tractors? Are we row cropping this content? No, ChatGPT exists. We're going to use it. It 10x is our output. I was, I was going to ask you about that. A lot of people that I think are afraid about what AI is going to do, they think, are we human beings going to be replaced by AI? But everyone I speak to that's really utilizing this is saying, no, we're not going to be replaced by AI. We're going to be replaced by people that are utilizing AI. And I think that the best organizations are finding ways to essentially give their team members almost AI assistance and increase their output efficiency and effectiveness through AI tools, whether it's ChatGPT or whether it's something else. And now their output can increase overall while maintaining the same number of labor hours. Absolutely. It's the name of the game. A lot of people need to change their mindset to I'm afraid about AI to I'm excited about AI. There's so much leverage. There's so much many capabilities. I was talking to one uh, to an individual from your team about the use of imagery. Now there's there's sites where the video editing capabilities and there's so many capabilities with content. And I think that people are afraid. Now we have clients that in our contracts say we will not use AI and we'll honor that. We'll do that. Really? What are they afraid of? Because didn't Google come out and say we don't really care? Google doesn't care if they updated their content guidelines. I think there's this fear of the unknown of this uncertainty. That's the real issue. You still have to edit the content. You have to make sure it's factually correct. Mm -hmm. But a lot of our technicians, so to speak, have went from writing to being prompt engineering editors. Mm -hmm. And the amount of output that we can do versus the other agency that's still writing the content, we're about 10x. Yeah, We're about 10x. And you can't compete if you're still doing that. Yeah. And that's a competitive advantage for your clients as Absolutely. well, because they're paying the same rate that they were paying before, and now their output increases and their effectiveness, the effectiveness of your team, the way you can deliver results for them. I think that agencies that don't adopt this, and even professional services businesses, I think they themselves will put themselves at a competitive disadvantage to an organization that does leverage AI tools. And you don't even have to look at this as AI. If you look years ago, there were people that were very standoffish to the internet or word processor or email. I remember our business early on, there was the purists that were filming with cameras and they had to use film. And this is when like digital cameras were coming out. And there's just a lot of productivity advancements there and capability advancements that just a lot of purists said, we're going to stick to just film. We're not going to go the digital route. Those companies don't exist anymore. They don't exist. 
we're talking about tech and code. Can you imagine if you're a farmer and didn't use a combine? It's not even fathomable. And that's where we're at right now. It's, it's just people need to flip their mindset on just how advantageous this is to use. The other thing is, is media. Media is a form of leverage. I tell my team all this, and, I, and I'm really going to compliment you here, is I get a lot of flack of this. I don't typically do speaking engagements. And the reason I don't is because I don't have much leverage. Out in the crowd might be 100, 200 people, maybe 1,000. I host my podcast. You know, I'm getting 4,000 to 5,000 listeners every single episode for my own. I have extreme. It's a keynote presentation every week. Yes. Would I make the trip here? Absolutely, Michael. I'm flattered to be here. Giant email list, giant distribution. It, it's a great use of my time. But a lot of times going to these events and me speaking on stage is not a good use of leverage. Yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, based on what we're about to say, a lot of people, a lot more people will probably start podcasts. But I think podcasts are, I mean, obviously they've been around for many, many years, but I still think they're one of the most underutilized and underleveraged mediums out there. Because, I mean, the example I like to give is that imagine you could do a webinar and let's just say you did a webinar where every single day you had a thousand of your ideal clients attend that webinar for a minimum of 45 to 60 minutes every single day, Monday through Sunday. You'd be like, wow, that's, that's a pretty incredible webinar. It's a pretty incredible marketing initiative. Well, a podcast is that. And at the same time, usually what when somebody's listening, they're either at the gym or they're in the car. You're catching them at a, almost undistracted to some extent. But, all, you know, there's it's in addition to what they would see, whether it's with digital ads or emails. So you're, just, you're hitting them in another outlet, right? Another sense, if you will. I think podcasting is amazing. But again, it's one of those things like we were just talking about where I know you've done well over 100 episodes of your podcast. You've been doing it for years. We've been doing ours every single week for well, three plus years straight. It didn't start out that way, right? You have right. to you have to stick with it. Like what it is today and the listenership and the, the consumption that it generates, it takes time, but you have to build these things. And I've seen a lot of people jump into podcasting and they'll do, I don't know, a handful of episodes and say, no one's listening. Because of course, I mean, there's millions of podcasts out there. I don't know the exact stat, but I read somewhere that it's like, if your podcast gets, it's like a hundred downloads an episode or something, you're in the top 10% of podcasts, something like that. So most people just don't stick it out. And think about that, 100 ideal prospects listening to it, even at 100, that's significant, especially if you do a weekly show. And the way the podcast works, it works like a repository. It works like a content library. For example, I know you're an avid podcast listener. Sometimes I'll go to my favorite shows and I see the guests. I'm like, eh, I'm not going to check that one out. And I'll go scroll through the past episodes and I'll see a, maybe a Huberman or somebody really excited and I'll listen to those. And, and you need time to develop this library so they have optionality. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's also, I think when you talk about leverage, it's, I like things that compound, right? And, and a podcast is something like that because when we had just a few episodes, I remember when we first started, you got one episode, two episodes, three episodes, but then you start to see, you get to a hundred episodes and every day you see that someone's still listening to episode one and episode five and episode six. And it's like every single episode we've looked gets at least one or 10 or even a hundred listens every single day. And when you've got over 160 of them, now you start to see compounding where it's not just the most recent one, right? People jump in at different times. And then to your point, I think every company should you know, eventually turn into a media company because so you can take this podcast, which is audio. We're also filming it, right? We'll also chop it up into video bits. So sometimes people consume these in short form. Then you also have graphic quote cards. Then you start posting on a different social platform. So some people will listen to it long form. Some people will watch it. Some people will listen to short form video bits and you know, others will share it. There's a blog post, there's show notes all from essentially an hour conversation. It's the ultimate flywheel. Yeah. It continues to power and spin faster because of all the things that you said. It can power an email list. It can power social media. It can short form clips and reels and TikTok. 
and what have you. And it just grows and grows and grows. It's one of the best force multipliers there are right now. Mm -hmm. It's not as saturated. It's more intimate. You have the individual in the ear. It's just exceptional. Yeah. I want to keep talking about leverage because I think this is an interesting topic. I don't know that we've discussed it enough on this podcast. I think about it constantly. And if we were to zoom out on like the different types of leverage you, you've mentioned, I, I really find there's like three key forms of leverage, right? There is time for money where you're working X amount of hours for X amount of income. And then the next level up on that pyramid would be the reverse of that money for time. So now you have money, but now you're trying to buy back time. You can buy back time in some of the different forms you've described, whether it's expanding your capacity by hiring somebody, it could be anything. I mean, it could be literally, be, you, you hire someone to clean your home, right? That gets you time back, right? That requires some sort of financial investment. And if you make enough money, eventually you can kind of put enough distance between you and whatever the work is, but the, so the work is still getting done, but now you're getting time back. And ideally you're finding time back or you're buying that time back to do things that you love to do, that bring you energy, that create the greatest amount of impact. And then the highest form of leverage is then money for money, right? Where it's like by making additional investments, you can continue to be able to grow and scale. I find most people are probably stuck at the bottom level of the pyramid where they look at strictly in terms of their time output to a money output. That one's the greatest constraint. There's only so many hours that you have in a day Yes, you can up-level things, like you can up-level your skills. You can gain like additional return on your investment in time. But to really gain like capacity, you've got to find ways to scale yourself. Right. I, I couldn't agree more. And it reminds me of this book, Dan Sullivan's Who Not How. Yeah. If you're going to figure out how to do something, it's, it's your term and it's, it's linear, it's slow versus someone else's time, it's exponential and fast. And that's where you get away from trading your time for money. And, and it's right, you start to expand and you have this multiplying impact. I use the example, if I'm going to go mow my yard, I have to figure out what lawnmower I'm going to use, when I'm going to mow it. I got to figure out the time I'm going to mow it. It's, it's slow. I got to figure out all these details. First, I go hire the lawn company. They're set up. They have the processes. Boom, they've done it a hundred times and, it, and it's exponential. And I'm buying back my freedom. I think there's this growth when it comes to a business owner. And I think all of us have to experience some pain here. It is at the beginning, it, you're the one man army. You're wearing all the hats. In most situations, you don't have the capital, so you got to do it. And then you start to shed and delegate, and then you got your, you go through this next iteration where maybe your hiring process wasn't good. Maybe you don't have the right processes. You start to give up on human beings. Yeah, and and, say no and, one wants to work. There's no great people out there. Keep my company small. I'm just I'm the which, which one. I think is when someone experiences that. And I've experienced it myself. I will say I'm a deeply flawed human being, but I think that's the wrong lesson to take away from an experience like that because what that's saying because there's a lot of ego there is essentially saying no one can do it like I can, and I don't believe in the ability to be able to gain leverage through expanding my capacity. There's so many flaws. Which keeps you stuck. It's it's flawed flawed yeah. because yeah maybe one individual can't but can three. Oh yeah, they can. And there is this learning experience that you have to become a, a good leader, not just a manager, a good leader and, and find talent that can get on your journey and, and have the vision and be aligned. And I heard this the other day, the, the guys in the rowing boat, mm -hmm. you know, they're not just cranking at the boat and like smacking the water. They're like in this smooth, yeah. smooth is fast. And they go significantly faster than people cranking it levers as hard as they can. Yeah. And I, I love that example because if you have somebody on that boat who's like rowing at a different speed, right, then the boat starts to spin. Yep. Right. And, and then you're not even moving forward, which I think is a great analogy for how teams can operate because alignment, especially as growing an organization, it's one of these things where as you add individuals, you increase complexity. And because of that, especially as we were talking about, let's say you've got a lot of like just internal team members. The same goes for, for even contractors. Just getting people to align and work collaboratively 
and all we're in the same direction is something that we all continuously work on. And it's one thing to do it when you've got 10 people. It's another thing to do it when you've got 50 people. And it's another, you know, at 100 people. It's just that the systems are different. The organizational structure is different. I remember once we figured it out at like five people, I thought that that same blueprint would help us at 20 people and it could have not been, have been more yeah. different. Yeah, it, it stresses that capacity. And there's so many things here. As the business owner, we want to generate profit. And you hit these different levels, especially around the eight figures mark where you have to start hiring these non-revenue generating employees. You have to have a head of people, a head of HR. You got to have these different types of managers. And that's a little bit of pain because you lose profitability, but it sets you up to grow. It sets you up to, to have the right people that, that can take you even further. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, and, and as you're saying this, I'm thinking, look, so what is the greatest form of leverage? So this is just my opinion. I could uh -huh. be wrong here, but I truly believe that the highest return on investment is the investment you make in yourself. So like your ability to make good decisions, your level of judgment, your own just capability to be able to evaluate situations, see first order, second order, third order consequences of things, because you're also the cap, right? So like, let's say you're the CEO of an organization, you're at 5 million in revenue, you want to grow to, to let's say 10 million in revenue, you want to go from seven figures to eight figures, but you've never done it before. So like you have to almost guide your organization to a place that you yourself have never been, which is kind of a silly concept in and of itself, right? So it's like, so how do you get there? Well, you can bang your head up against the wall, hoping that it gets softer, right? Or you can figure out, okay, how, how have other people done this? Because you have to get some sort of new information. Because if you're just doing it through sheer like trial and error, it's the slowest way to go. Your team's going to be exhausted and you're probably not going to get there just by accident. I couldn't agree more. And it goes back to this who, not how too. When you want to expand into a new capability, maybe you're an attorney, you want to expand into a new practice area, you can take the time to learn it yourself and you can do that. Or you can hire the killer that already knows that it's exponential and faster. And it may cost you more money, but a lot of times that investment's worth it. Yeah. And there's certain skills, like the, again, like the one you just mentioned, where I look at that and I say, well, what is the competency there? And I think it is the ability to attract, recruit, and engage the type of individual that allows you to move faster. And, and no matter what the role is, maybe you need to find a great data and analytics person because you want to be able to have great reporting within your firm. You know that's important to make data-driven decisions. Maybe you need someone to run your intake and you could learn intake or you can go out and find that person but then becomes the next challenge where you say, hey, I want the best trial lawyers. I want the best intake staff. I want the best paralegals. But why would the best want to work at your firm? So then it's figuring out how do we attract those individuals? And I think that's where a lot of time is spent because the best could go anywhere. I agree. And I think there's some significant advantages. And here I am. I got a remote company. There's advantages for talent and different things keeping your operational costs. But I think that also it creates challenges with that alignment, with that camaraderie and, and pushing certain directions. There are different things that you have to do to try to create that. One of the things that we have to do is we hire in pockets. Even though a remote company will hire eight to 10 people in Louisville, other people over here. So they can get together and have these collaborative experiences and, and be aligned, but still not have the facilities cost. There's so much to this. It's how you get to the next next level. I think a lot of people get fearful around HR. There's this study, I, I'm going to paraphrase this and it's going to be wrong, but it's, it's Dunbar's number where most people on average can't maintain relationships beyond 200. So you have to have assistance there. It's just not within our physical capabilities. Now there's some exceptions. There's some amazing human beings but you hit these ceilings and you need to bring other people in to help you expand. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I would even say with, with, with leaders, I don't know one that can effectively manage more than, I mean, let's say you're a capable leader, 
maybe five to eight direct reports where you're checking in with them one-on-one, you're growing them, you're supporting them. As I mean, as this team start to grow, there's, there's going to be some sort of compromise because you only have so much time, you only have so much capacity. And that's where you see organizations grow in terms of like adding managers and middle managers and directors. And, and I used to look at this stuff and say, man, I could never see our organization like turning into having these, these different layers of leadership and management, but it's the only way you can simplify complexity. Because otherwise, if people have no direction, if they have no direct report, or it's just you, if you're the direct report for everyone in your organization, then you're going to find that you're dealing with the bathrooms like clogged up. And then you're finding out they're like, okay, now this person quit. Now that's your problem. Let's say there's not enough toilet paper in the bathroom. We're out of printer paper. Like every issue hits you. And then you start evaluating is me dealing with these things, the highest and best use of my time. And what's really happening there is you are handling these things, but your organization isn't growing and it's not growing because you're spending your time worrying about toilet paper versus strategy and how to actually scale that organization. Completely agree. The assistance, I think you can get a a ton of assistance to help with your time. The other thing is, is looking at, I think there's this fear about using strategic partners or subcontractors. And I'm going to use an example for myself. So if a person wants to do SEO, right, they kind of get this, oh, I want to bring it in house. Well, most of the time, one SEO specialist doesn't have all the disciplines necessary to do a great campaign. They may be a good writer, but not a good link builder, or they may be a good link builder and they don't know technical SEO. So you have these fractionalized components where you get utilization from each of these components. You get a content writer, a local person, a link builder, right? And if someone tries to bring that in-house, maybe they would have to hire so many people and then they didn't have, wouldn't have enough capacity for them. It's a big drain on profit. There are situations where you need to use partners at different levels of your evolution as a company to get past those ceilings. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, I'm curious, man, with, with all the things we've talked about, what's a day in the life look like for you right now? Like, walk me through, I don't know if there's a typical day, but how are you spending your time? That's a, a great question. I, I've got my morning routine. I get up at 530. I'm getting a 30 ounce at Starbucks, venti black, and I'm listening to an audio book. I'm listening to podcasts every single morning. I have this, it's kind of like this meditative state where I, I'm just by myself. There's no noise before I come in. I'm at work. I'm doing a lot of podcasting because I have a lot of leverage there. I know a lot about this, but I'm, you know, I'm human. I'm not perfect. There's some things that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing at work and relinquishing control. I'm aware, I'm cognizant of it. And I'm doing a lot of podcasting, a lot of high level stuff. And I'm trying to switch the mindset. I'm not as physically fit. You're doing great on the health side. And I'm trying to think of it not separately. If you have a racehorse, you're not feeding this racehorse just junk and think it's going to perform. I'm trying to get in that mindset. And so things like we have a lot of our meetings on Mondays and and I'll do a Monday massage and I'm getting more focused. We're talking about Huberman and Inside Tracker. I spend a lot of time with my kiddo. I'm I'm very active trying to educate him and provide him as many opportunities as I can. So how did things change or did things change with becoming a dad? Wow. What a change, uh, just thrown to the fire. So my wife had some health complications on our first child and I was just thrown to the fire. I mean, she couldn't even hold our kiddo for the first three days and I've never changed a diaper. You can't just read about how to change a diaper and it's like, hey, keep this baby alive. Everything changed. I know a lot of people say, hey, you're just not gonna have time. And I'm like, ah, whatever. I kind of blew that off, but yeah, it's, it's totally changed. I get to experience things differently again going to the zoo, seeing an animal, hearing those words. It's an amazing feeling. Um, I'm so glad I did it, but it's changed everything. 
being a competitive person? Do you think it made you more competitive, less competitive? Did it change your focus? Did it change your priorities? It hasn't made me less competitive. My wife gets really irritated because even a game of Yahtzee, in my head, I get mad when people pick the wrong dice to roll. That's mathematically, or even Monopoly and things like that, poker, whatever it is. I'm like super competitive. And I think that the biggest thing is my level of risk. I love the Dondo Investor, Monish Pabriya, great book, talking about heads I win, tails I don't lose much. I used to have these major asynchronous bets that I would take, and I wouldn't care if it exploded to zero because it was just me. I have so much confidence in myself and my education that I could pick back up. So I would take these very extreme asynchronous bets. Now today, those bets are are not the same. I'm still taking them, but I'm a lot more cautious. You know, I've got the overfunded whole life insurance protecting my real estate. I'm taking money off the table and not just jamming back into the business a little bit more. And so I'm a little bit safer on the yeah. on that side. And let's elaborate on that because I think there's different chapters of our lives where, I mean, I'll tell you early on starting the business, bootstrapping the business, I think you have to take asynchronous bets because if you're too conservative and you're just only investing in sure things, like if you're investing, let's say on the financial side, just investing in bonds, you're not going to see a whole lot of growth. You're doing it with a very long time scale. Mm-hmm. You have to do that. But then what do you think is like the turning point where you say, all right, I've got to kind of shift this risk profile because you still want to invest because you want to innovate. You still want to grow. Right. But yeah. at the same time, my rule is I'm never going to bet on anything that if I lose is going to wipe me out. Of course not. We're responsible yeah. for too many people. We've got a great team. We've got my family. I, I think about that. I can't just like YOLO on NFTs and say, hey, guys, we just put all our money in this. Or we went to Vegas. We bet on black. And sorry, I came back. The money's gone. I don't have the answer here. I'm just going to be real. I have put these different security things in play, whether it's cash or the overfunded where I can draw against it. I don't have any debt besides investment properties. And I don't have the answer there, but I I think you do have to take risks on early. Mm -hmm. I think they have to be applied risk. You have to understand like what the outcome could be. And that's where the asynchronous side comes into play. That's why I love Pabri's book, The Dondo Investor. It's the heads I win, tails I don't lose much. It's like, it's it's very strategic bets. Mm -hmm. And that's where you gain an advantage because other people won't do it sometimes or they don't execute. They have these ideas and you just got to go for it. Yeah. As we talk about this, I think this is all related. Like, I think this is, this is what entrepreneurship is and you are placing bets, but it's also, we think about growing capabilities and like improving your judgment and decision-making because whenever you're in a meeting, whenever you're deciding whether you're going to make some sort of investment, whether it's hiring someone, whether it's a marketing investment, it doesn't matter whatever it is in your practice, in your law firm or, or in your business. You look at that and you say, all right, what's the upside here? What's the downside? How likely am I to win? How likely am I to lose? And you evaluate all that with every single decision you make. And sometimes you're making dozens, maybe hundreds of decisions every single day. And I think the person who can correctly evaluate that risk profile in every single decision they make and fail less. To me, it's not so much about winning more. Sometimes it's like once you get to a certain level, it's about failing less and making less mistakes. That person becomes much more successful than the person who makes the wrong decision every single time you know, let's say they put, like we were talking about earlier, they put up some billboards a couple months go by, they don't see much success and they say, that's it, we abandon billboards. Right, right. And there's some decision-making frameworks on this. And uh, one of these I got from my previous business coach, it was Carl Sakis. It's what's the best scenario? What's the minimum acceptable that I'm willing to live with yeah. on a decision? And I heard Bezos talk about the door based framework. Have you heard of this? Yes. So like kind of one way versus two way doors. One way versus two way. Yeah. If you got a two way door, you can make those decisions more quickly because you can go in the door and then you can leave and go back out. 
But if it's just a one-way direction, you may need to think about a little bit more and, and do a little bit more research because those are more permanent and those are more risky, yeah. so to speak. And this is a, probably a perfect segue because I know you wrote a great book, Niching Up. And speaking of, I don't know if you consider this a one-way door, but just the evolution of, of your agency as far as like just rankings. And then you were working with law firms, just all different practice areas, and then saying, no, we're going to work exclusively with these elite personal injury firms. Talk me through that decision. There were a lot of reasons why I did it. I kept being hit over the head. And I know you've talked to Seth Godin and, and read probably Purple Cow and being remarkable. So the first part was understanding who I am and I wanted to be exceptional. So that means focus. So I had this natural inclination to narrow. In my agency, the first six years, I looked at the data and we, we can go all in on data and, and how much awareness that gives you. I found that 70% of my revenue was personal injury law firms and it was less than 50% of my clientele. So it was a clear decision to move that way. There was a, there was a lot of opportunity and I did that. I went all in, I, I referred out a lot of clients. That was a little bit of pain, but it allowed me to open up capacity and improve the focus and eliminate waste. I don't have to do keyword research for 10 areas of law, I'm doing it for one. And so I went that direction. And to be honest, the book was me unpacking my brain. I wanted to write a book. And we could talk about the pros and cons of self-publishing. That's a whole different thing. But went through that experience. I'm really happy I did it. It helped me unpack what were the true advantages in niching, what were the true flaws. The thing that I'm looking at now, Mike, is I was trying to diminish TAM. Mm -hmm. There's 50,000-ish personal injury law firms. There's 450,000-ish law firms in the U.S. You know, 9X the TAM. That's a big disadvantage. Yeah. Especially when you got a lot of leverage and you got a lot of distribution and you're trying to make a profit and, and, and create value out there. So it created some awareness. It was a great opportunity. I'm glad I did it. The, in terms of like, is it is it for profit? I don't have any ascension plan. There's no course after this. I just felt like I had something to say. Yeah. I guess on that note, what you're doing, even regardless of whether that supports the business directly, you're also building your personal brand, which yeah. speaking of leverage... I think is where all the future leverage lies because there's the leverage you can gain within your own organization, within your firm. And then there's the leverage you gain through building your personal brand, the opportunities that that unlocks, all the things that now you're able to do. So I guess if you could speak to that, what's been your experience? My experience is I should have been doing this a lot longer. I've just now started investing in my personal brand with the book, with a LinkedIn and, and being consistent there. A lot of consistency compounds over time. That, that's been my primary network. And it's trust, it's distribution, it's relationships, and it's something that I didn't put enough emphasis in. Here's the interesting thing I've started looking at. You take a Neil Patel, you take a Cardone, you take a Gary Vee. All these guys have major personal brands, significant distribution. So they have numerous opportunities because of this broad category versus me. I'm, I'm the PI, PI guy. I've got some opportunities there, but I don't, I don't have anything outside that category. And it, it takes time to develop. I don't know if you've read Snow Leopard. When you're trying to attract a big audience, you're reaffirming existing beliefs. You're saying things that appeal to a large audience versus a small, narrow category. But I got to tell you, it's the future and I need to do more of it. Yeah. When you think about personal brands, like you look at lover or hater, like you look at the Kylie Jenner example, Kylie yeah. Jenner becomes a billionaire selling lip gloss. And I know so there's some people that are going to hear this and they're going to kind of roll their eyes and they say, oh, I don't like Kylie Jenner or they don't like Logan Paul or, or they don't like Mr. Beast. 
but these are these massive personal brands, but because of their, their reach and the amount of consumption they're able to gain, they can partner up on some sort of opportunity. They already have the built-in audience and boom, because of the reach they already have, the community they've already built, now they're able to scale that and really start to monetize that. Like we'll see, I know a lot of people are saying Mr. Beast, the YouTuber, is going to be the first billionaire YouTuber. It's inevitable. Yeah, I think he got offered a billion dollars for his channel and he said yeah. no. The other thing is, I found myself giving advice. I was recently at a mastermind uh, last week and there was an individual, there's a, his niece came and she had a session and had all these high performers, hedge fund people there and super high performers. And she was wondering, hey, should I go to college? Sh what should I do? Sh you know, I want to start this clothing line. And, and I found myself saying, develop your personal brand, start a podcast, get distribution, because then you can partner with someone that already has a clothing brand and to sell their stuff because you have distribution and a brand. Yeah. Well, and I also think the important thing is that someone just does something. I, I, I see sometimes, yeah. I know a lot of really intelligent people. I think sometimes people just almost think themselves out of income. They become like information consumers. They spend a lot of time just consuming, whether it's courses, whether they're reading a bunch of books. And, and we're all guilty of this. You know, I even think myself included. But- I find that sometimes what's missing is the execution and someone willing to put something out there and then iterate upon it, right? So meaning that, you know, let's say they start a podcast, it may not have to be the world's best podcast right out of the gate. Maybe they're thinking, how am I going to get great guests on? I don't know anybody. I don't have a huge network. Or they put out a video on their YouTube channel or they start, you know, a TikTok and they think, well, no one's watching this stuff or it's not very good. And it's like, don't worry about your first one. I mean, I know you had uh, Alex Hormozzi on the podcast. Love Hormozzi. And he's done over a thousand podcasts now. And it was only a, a couple of years ago, probably right around the time his book came out, that his brand really started to, to scale exponentially. But he was out there putting out that content for years. Yeah, and quantities create quality. Yeah. I mean, look at what you guys are doing now. Look, I see it. I see the the amount of TikToks you're putting out, the amount, you, you've got to do that. And you learn what works. Mm -hmm. And then you go all in with it. It creates this, this uh, awareness. The other thing too, with the courses, it, it's our natural biology and how, and we go through this evolution. Everyone starts at the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy. That's recall. You read, you can take a quiz, you can whatever. The next step up on Bloom's, the next one is application. Yeah. That is execution. Yeah. Like I said, we talked about me having a newborn. Look, I'm the dad nerd. I was reading all the dad books. Mm -hmm. Did those dad books really help me change a diaper properly that first time and, and fumble around with it? No, I had to do it. I had to do the SEO. I had to write content. I had to start a podcast. I do these... And that's where you move up Bloom's Taxonomy to analyze, then you know what's good or bad. And then you come to the very top, which is where we all want to be. That's synthesize. We can see opportunity because we went through this journey. And so many people get paralyzed at the bottom of recall, and that's just not where the action lies. Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm, I'm curious, just, just shifting the conversation, I'm wondering, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Anything you think about? Just And maybe that's evolved over time. I'm just wondering you know, if, if there's anything now. Honestly, Mike, and my wife gets frustrated, my head hits a pill, I go right to sleep. The only thing that's keeping me up now is if my kiddo's screaming. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> those deals. You know, you go through those good days and those bad days. Honestly, I've done a good job on the stress side, and I think I've deleveraged a lot of my my risk. Mm -hmm. And with the overfunded whole life, look, I have complete comfort. I kick the bucket. I don't want that to happen. My wife and kiddo are good. My family's good. And so a lot of those initial like real stressors that I had, especially in the beginning when it was, there was a lot of uncertainty. In fact, about three or four years in, you take these licks, you take these punches. Mine was, I didn't understand my numbers good enough and I saw the cash coming in, 
but I was reading the P&Ls wrong and I was over hiring and, it, and I started to crew a lot of debt like quickly because I didn't get my head around it fast enough. And, and that almost took me out. Like I had to learn and you go through these experiences, but right now head hits the pillow pretty well. And, and it seems like you've done a really good job of that, of like, you know, once you've solved the money problem, that's created a lot of just freedom and creativity. You're not a yacht guy, you're not like no. Gucci Prada. What's driving you today? I like the game. I like the growth game. I'm a serial entrepreneur. And I've taken these experiences from the agency and I've applied it to other opportunities. Take real estate, for example. Do you know how many properties I've looked at, Mike? Three. I've owned over 60 now. I've only looked at three. I have these criteria. I have a checklist. I have an investment realtor. They follow this criteria. By the way, the checklist has been created through punches in the face that I've learned in real estate. I don't even go to the signing. I have chief of staff who's got power attorney, goes, signs a contract, drops the keys off. I've learned how to utilize and delegate and create processes and apply these other avenues. Started doing minority-based investments and other cross places in the agency space. I like the game. I love it. It's so fun to me. I was a big RPG role-playing, you know, fantasy, uh, Final Fantasy, Dungeons and Dragons. Like you got this knight, you're fighting monsters and like leveling up and getting bigger. Like that's what I'm doing. As a business entrepreneur, I'm playing that game and I just love it. I love it, man. So as, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, Chris, what does being a game changer mean to you? Mike, the only thing that comes to mind is you only play the game to win. That's all there is to it. I want to give a huge thank you to Chris Dreyer for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Chris Dreyer, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.